Whether you want to travel more or communicate better with international clients, you need to try Babbel. I've used Babbel's courses and you can do the same in order to learn real life conversation skills in a different language, order food, ask for directions, or speak to clients without having to use translation apps. Right now, get 60% off your Babbel subscription. This is only for our listeners at babbel.com slash freelance. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash freelance, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L.com slash freelance. Rules and restrictions apply. When you wake up in the morning and check your phone, does it feel like this or like this? Because with Shopify, your morning can feel like this way more often. That's the sound of a sale being made on your new Shopify store. And while client payments may require weeks or months of work, you can start generating a semi-passive income to grow your business by setting up a Shopify store all of your own. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your latest designs on shirts or bags or adding something totally different to your business, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. You can sell online, you can sell in person, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. With Shopify, you can set up your store in minutes and start selling immediately. And Shopify's award-winning support is there to help you as you go. Sign up for a $1 per month trial at shopify.com slash freelance. That's all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash freelance to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash freelance or click the link in our show description and start waking up to this. I'm Brandon Hull, and it's time to dial up a new episode of Freelance to Founder. But I only do a lifetime membership because if I had a monthly membership, there's the expectation that every single month there needs to be the same or more value of what a member's paying. In my eyes, I think there's so many subscription products out there now that people are paying for every single month. If I'm going to be another one, I've got to make sure every single month providing X amount of value for that. And that almost adds pressure to me where I don't need it at the moment with this being a side project. For Milo, you're listening to the Freelance to Founder podcast, a show where I talk to men and women like Ben Tossel, the man you just heard, who are service providers, marketing agency owners, online course builders, authors, bloggers, product creators, software developers, and even other podcasters. I introduce you to my guests in a way where you genuinely get to know them. Not just how, but why they're now doing what they're doing today. And of course, how they pivoted, how they scaled things beyond themselves, as well as the principles and values and the people who've motivated and mentored them along the way. We've had, dare I say, some software moguls on this podcast in the past. Mike McDermott from FreshBooks, Nathan Berry from ConvertKit, Mark Von Brockdorf from Hotjar, Brennan Dunn from Right Message. But I've got a new spin on things for you for this episode. See, there's this movement swelling. It's called the no-code movement. And the concept, the concept is this. You build a lightweight or maybe even a deeply sophisticated website, web app, community, marketplace, or even a traditional service company that's dependent upon software but you do it without writing a single line of code or outsourcing it to a developer. The way it works is you use this emerging lineup of tools from companies like Airtable, Webflow, Bubble, Glide Apps, Sheet to Site, Memberspace, Zapier, and numerous others. You patch them together behind the scenes as a sort of back end to the web presence you're building and voila, you've got a niche version of Airbnb or a custom event website that's dynamically driven. Not only are companies looking at this as a faster way to build prototype apps, but there's a workforce of ninjas who specialize in building these kinds of web experiences. Again, with no code involved. Just ingenuity, an eye for design, or an entrepreneurial problem-solving spirit. Today's guest is at the very forefront of this movement. He's the founder of MakerPad.co. It's an educational platform that features tutorials for how you and I normal human beings who might otherwise melt down if we had to actually write extensive code, uh, how we can build sophisticated web experiences. I've personally tried several of the tutorials and, or I've used them as inspiration, and I'm convinced this is the future. Ben has been running MakerPad for only six months, but it's already generated six figures in revenue and features over 400 lifetime customers. It's the real deal. 
Learn from Ben in this episode, how he got to where he is by waltzing right through doors of opportunity, how he's built a tremendous platform that educates and motivates, and pick up some great words of wisdom in our final segment of the episode. Yes, our three-in-one. One principle, one habit, one person who's influenced Ben. Hey, one quick final heads up. Not the best audio quality in this episode, and I apologize for that, but the ideas and the inspiration is just too good. All right, without further ado, I'm happy to bring you my conversation with Ben Tossel, founder of MakerPad. Ben Tossel, thank you so much for joining me on Freelance Founder. It's so great to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. You, uh, you're a world traveler, it, uh, tracking you down and getting you uh, when you've been able to be stationary for you know just an hour or so has been a difficult chore, my friend. Yeah, I think it's uh, pros and cons of the remote world, right? I think um, we all try and spend too far, too long away from where we're supposed to be. <laughs> you, uh, Greece, uh, you've got Italy coming up, um, just kind of a, a jet setter all over the place. But anyway, it's good to have you sit down uh, for an hour with me today and, and talk through uh, the story behind MakerPad. I'm, I'm extremely intrigued and have been for a long time about this this world, uh, rapidly growing world of the no-code movement, and uh, you're on the forefront of it. And so finding out a little bit more about your backstory, sharing it with others, especially those who uh, don't find themselves developers, but constantly have these ideas in their mind, I think this will make for a, a great story uh, for a lot of people who are who consider themselves freelancers and want to be more than that. Yeah, I hope so. So I will say that we, we've had numerous developers on in our past. Um, developers who've built their own apps from scratch. Maybe they were freelancers at first, and they're not even personally developers themselves. Uh, but they had an idea. They had connections. They had a maybe a partner or a founder or something like that that they could work with to develop, to bring something to fruition that was a, uh, a software as a, as a service. Uh, your situation is unique because you have been well entrenched in that world for a little while now um, and have, have worked for SaaS providers, have worked for uh, online marketplaces uh, and so forth. And now, and now you're, you're building your own and teaching other people to build their own um, marketplaces, platforms, and so forth, but to do it with no software development required whatsoever. So this is going to be a really cool one, and and I'm I'm gonna I'm really gonna want <laughs> to dive into how you've done what you've done, how you've seen the possibilities with no code and the limitations of it as well. But your story, your your story doesn't start there. Uh, it seems like just a short time ago you were you had finished your intern life, you were uh, working at Sprinkler. Uh, so this is going to be really cool to, to, to talk about the evolution of things, but why don't you level set things for us for right now and share with everybody where you're at today with MakerPad as a business as far in terms of revenue, uh, number of customers, that sort of thing, just so people know where you're coming from. Yeah, sure. So MakerPad right now has, um, I think it's around 400, um, members, 300 of those are paid. I've given away a lot of sort of free memberships over the time. Um, we've got 11 businesses on board as well. So we have a business-to-business model as well as business-to-consumer, uh, customer rather. Um, and we're about 130,000 in revenue for this year, just sort of started in, in January. So we're doing really well. And it's, it's, it's still all a side project right now. So yeah, it's very exciting. Yeah, it's a side project that is genuinely taken on a life of its own. And MakerPad's only been in the wild for how long? Yeah, it must have been six months or so. Um, <laughs> it's not really been sort of out there like like other things are. But yes, uh, been a nice, nice, uh, nice ride. That's pretty incredible. So this is MakerPad is technically a side project for you today. Can you uh, share with our listeners what your day job is at Ernest Capital? Yeah, I work at Ernest Capital, so I'm on the platform side of things. We invest in early stage founders, um, bootstrappers, allowing them to go full time on their business. And the irony is not lost to me that I'm doing this on the side, and Ernest is my, my full time thing. But yeah, I get to work with founders every day who are running their own little SaaS businesses. Uh, we've enabled them to go full time, and and yeah, we can uh, work with them on their problems week on week, which is uh, really interesting. Yeah, this is really cool. So if you go back in time just a handful of years 
to your sprinkler days or your internship days um, is 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 the idea of running a thriving full-time business on the side while also having a really cool job where you work with fledgling companies, uh, you know, founders who are starting up brand new companies. Is this what you pictured for yourself? Is this the life that you pictured for yourself? I can't say that's exactly what I pictured. I think um, scenario number one was probably like a lot of people, which was to have my own business and make tons of money doing I don't know what yet. Um, and then when I started sort of playing around with little ideas, I always thought maybe there's a little side a side project that could do well for me. Um, but yeah, I mean, when you're in the tech startup world, some people have that aspiration to one day I'll be an investor or be on the investing side because that seems like must seem like the best job in the world right you just get to chat with founders they have to deal with all the problems and you just give them money and give them some advice to uh, to try and fix it but you don't really have any like day-to-day problems with them so it must seem like a great job for a lot of people and that's not quite where I thought I'd be but I'm, uh, I'm in a great position right now it's awesome yep so as we look back at where you were, let's say, four to five years ago, uh, you had finished an internship. You had uh, a job at Sprinkler. I think you were a social media analyst, display and social media analyst. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And you spent, spent a, maybe a year and a half there or something like that. But um, I think a, a, a little important but uh, short-term role that you had as well was a, a stint that you spent as the sales lead for a small startup as well, right? Where it was an app or something like that, a food ordering app or something along those lines. Is that right? Did I get that right? <laughs> yeah, it was um, when I first moved to London. That was before Sprinkler. I, uh, I found this job on a, a really bad job website and it just claimed itself as a startup. And it was so you could order your food and drinks before you got to a bar or a pub or a, a coffee shop. Um, and I was put in as the, the salesman. So I had to just go around London talking to people in pubs and things. So it didn't really um, take off. Was it that I made zero zero sales my whole time I was there. So safe to say I wasn't suited for that role. Um, but the app didn't actually take off after that. So I can't put the full blame on myself. <laughs> so you you eliminated that as a future career path. So one one uh, one career path you put a, you could strike through as okay that one's not going to happen. But now I have learned some things about getting the word out about a uh, about an app or about a marketplace or about a platform or whatever it is and just how difficult that sometimes can be if you're counting on doing it in a in a one at a time sort of way like that with a target market, right? Yeah, I think just like door-to-door sales was not my thing. Um, I still would say that would not be my thing now, but it definitely sort of piqued my interest of the startup world um, somewhat. So while you're at Sprinkler, um, talk to us a little bit about what your role was there and, and why did, in your mind, the gears start turning to starting your own thing or uh, you picturing what that thing would be. T- tell us a little bit about your time at Sprinkler and how it how it fueled either the wisdom that you gained there, the experience you gained there, um, how that sort of led to your next step in your in your uh, career? Um, it's difficult because I think the job at Sprinkler wasn't really like it wasn't really a path for me to get to the next thing. I didn't know what that was. I just that was me being in London. I wanted to have a job that paid quite well. I could have fun. It was sort of relaxed and a, a sort of started be vibe because it was a it was a social agency that got acquired by Sprinkler towards the end. Um, so it was very much play ping pong in the office, free food, massages, haircuts, all that sort of stuff within the office. So it was very like I was more in it for that lifestyle than I was it really interested in setting up social ads. So I can definitely safely say that. Um, but my role was essentially setting up social and display ads for uh, big companies like Vodafone um, and things like that. So they pay us as part of their marketing strategy to promote a mobile phone plan or the new iPhone 5C or whatever it was coming out that Christmas and things like that. So we'd run those campaigns. And was it during that time that you stumbled across, across Product Hunt? dot com yeah think, uh, that that site yeah i think it must have been 
when I was at Springfield, I mean, I've always always wanted to run my own business in some sort of dream world. Um, and then through the the sort of experience of that app, if you can call it that, um, was when that started, I think I started diving into startup stuff and thought, what could I do in a startup? Where could I fit in? How could I build one? How could I make one? And from that, I found product and, and around that, there was a lot of sort of entrepreneur startup um, Slack groups where there's hundreds, thousands of people who just were all wanting to start their own thing. Um, and I was certainly one of those people. So I really dived into those and just tried to, I was trying to be the, the person who was helpful, I'll say, um, which just involved me saying hello to everyone trying to chat to everyone, talk to ideas, trying to give any feedback and just really trying to be like someone that people remembered was around in that, in that group. Cause I knew I, I wasn't technical. Um, right. Was that intimidating to you to not be a developer, but to be mixing it up with other uh, entrepreneurs or as you put it, entrepreneurs who had not just the ideas, but the, the talent, you know, to be able to bring those ideas to life, to build basically whatever they wanted to build. Um, was that intimidating at all? Or did you feel like, no, uh, you know, I've got my own set of skills and I'll bring something different to the table. Oh no, I didn't have any, I don't think I had any, any of the skills to provide. I just was willing to do anything else that wasn't the programming, which unfortunately for side projects and small products, there isn't that much in the early days. Um, so it's definitely difficult to try and go into a group of people who some of them, when they can build their own thing, it's a lot easier. They can just go, I want to build something and then can start building it. Whereas I felt like I have to start all these relationships and things, which it wasn't a bad thing. It wasn't necessarily a transactional relationship because like, I did enjoy speaking to other people about different ideas and things. And, and from that, tried to start a few things with, with uh, a few other people, but they were just little, little ideas, really. Right. And it sounds like if I understand your story well, you, you, made, you, be, you, you began to make connections with others that were either uh, developers themselves or community builders themselves that got your mind turning that, listen, I can do this. This is the, the idea of building something and not being a developer I can still pull this off. I don't even need a developer as a partner or as a co-founder or something like that. That sounds like the connections that you had from what I've read started to be the fuel that turned into you feeling confident that, you know what, I can do this. I don't need to be a developer. Well, I don't think it's completely accurate in that in this at this point in my in my career. I think I was still I thought, well actually I can I can put together 400 links, titles, and things as resources that I could just sort of slap on a website. Um, and I was lucky enough to come across, um, we call him Mubs, and he's a prolific maker. I'm sure many people would have seen him on the internet, but he makes, he makes things for fun all the time and so quickly and so well. And he was willing to help me set up my first website. So I did all the, I want to say, grit work, gathering all these things, which were a, a basically a curated directory of marketing resources and he gave me a website that I could just populate with all these things and that became my first thing that I could actually launch and put out there that people could look at. Was that marketing stack? Yes, that was, yeah. Okay, so that was like a directory of just marketing resources, tools and things like that that was actually it was visually designed really well so people could easily identify some potential marketing tools that they could you know, uh, uh, incorporate into their, their own marketing stack, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. So, so since you weren't a developer and you partnered with a, um, a colleague or let's call him a mentor or just a friend, um, a wise friend, um, how did you build that? And did that, did that endeavor itself sort of build some confidence in you or start to turn things in your mind that, okay, okay, I've got, I've got something under, under my belt now. I, there's more I can do with this. Yeah, well, it happened all really quickly because I had seen another directory um, site from someone else who was in these groups with us. So I actually had built, so I put together the same sort of thing, but lots of marketing resources, like you said, in a massive Google Sheet. So there's just hundreds of links and titles and things like that in a Google Sheet. 
And then when Mubs had said, here's the sort of skeleton of the site, if you just upload all the things here, like you add a new post, then it'll come up on on um, whatever category you decide on the homepage. So it was a fairly simple site um, from his point of view, for sure. He's built things a million times more uh, more complex. So once he, he had that, I could easily just spend my time putting that stuff onto the site. And I launched it on Product Hunt, and it just really, really took off. It became one of the top 20 upvoted things of all time. And from there, it, I didn't almost didn't have time to think, oh, I can do this, because in quick succession, I was recommended to Ryan, um, CEO of Product Hunt, for a job um, to become a community manager there. So it was very quick from, I'm launching my first thing, oh my God, I can't believe I'm, like, there's something people can look at, to now this site that I've been using as inspiration and thousands of other people do daily wants to hire me to run the site. So I was like, right. this is two different worlds here. And just for context for, for listeners, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty uh, active on Product Hunt. And I, I really, I do it more to, to keep on top of cool things that people are developing and building and, and how those are scaling or gaining attention and so forth. And it seems like in a, in a typical day um, or over the course of time, a relatively worthwhile uh, product that's been hunted or added to that uh, directory. I'll call it a directory, even though it's much more than that. Um, may get, I don't know, uh, somewhere between a hundred and a few hundred uh, views, and that would be, or sorry, not views, but votes uh, or upvotes, and and that's that's not a bad uh, that's not a bad number at all. You know, to have somewhere between a hundred and, and a few hundred, and some of the 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 top hunted products on any given day may top out around 700 or 800 or something like that. And marketing stack as of now, and I know it's been a few years, um, is, is sitting at about 5,500 upvotes. So clearly it resonated with people, which means clearly it got the attention of Ryan who founded Product Hunt and it turns into the job while you're at Product Hunt, and which has got to completely open your eyes to all sorts of possibilities as you're sifting through all of these other ideas that are being submitted on a regular basis by either the, the hunters themselves or the founders of certain products and services um, on Product Hunt. So it just it must have just really opened your mind. You already knew Product Hunt, obviously, but it really being on the other side of the desk, so to speak, on the working side of Product Hunt, must, must have really opened your eyes into what's possible. Yeah, definitely. I think it's it's difficult to be surrounded by thousands of new products every single day that new people are making and not feel like you should be able to make stuff as well even if i wasn't technical and luckily in the position that i was i was in i could see people building platforms for which non-technical people like myself could build their own things so every day part of my job was to test out these products and see if things are cool and and talk about them um so it was a great way for me to really dive in and, and test out a lot of things and to see if I could build the things that I wanted to or, or couldn't in the past without having to rely on someone like Mubs to come along and, and offer help for free. So Marketing Stack was your first one. And it's funny, it's your first one. And then it becomes you know one of the largest, uh, most upvoted products of all time, uh, that, which probably set you up, I want to say, for success. But in other ways, it, it, total false sense of... Uh, of reality that that's how it works when you launch something on product hunt but again you're on the other side of the fence you're at product hunt so you recognize that that's just not you know you just hit on a hit a chord with that one people you struck a nerve with people with that resource and uh, i'm sure it taught you a little bit about what types of things resonate with people on product hunt as far as submitted products uh, to begin with but while you're there at product hunt it sounds like that's when your your feelings about building platforms, building web apps, building um, uh, any sort of, of online destination besides just a blog, besides just a web a static website, it seems like with this idea of doing it without a, a background in coding sort of ratchets to a whole new level. Is that is that right? Yeah, I think yeah the possibilities were becoming bigger and bigger. I was around I was there when Webflow and Bubble were launching for the first time. So I was helping them with their product launch and I just 
I got to see the inside of what these people were building, um, and they've come a, a long way since then. Um, but yeah, it was just incredible to see the, the possibilities that were were coming out, and it was just really eye opening and a great opportunity for me to think I don't need to be technical to do this. But it's not that I hadn't I hadn't tried learning to code like the whole transition from up to up to product and I've I tried here and there to, to do some coding stuff but it just never it never worked out for me so all right so you you're you're doing your day gig uh, at product hunt sort of managing the community uh, interacting with these founders uh, partnering with with some some of the uh, founders and their companies through product hunt meanwhile you check out at night, let's say, although I'm sure Product Hunt was a go, go, go thing. I, I know some of the dynamics of how Product Hunt works well for people. And um, uh, it's, it's, it's hard for it to not become a 24-7 thing, I'm sure, for you. But um, in your downtime, these ideas are percolating. Can you, beyond marketing stack, can you share what you started to do on the side um, that, that laid the foundation for MakerPad? Um, yeah, I think... Like you said, it was uh, being a remote person. I was in the UK, and Product Hunt runs on uh, Pacific time. Um, it's difficult to switch off, even when it's seven, eight PM in the evening on a weekday. Um, but on the times that I did manage to sort of get away from the day-to-day stuff, I I just started dabbling in all sorts of things. I can't even remember half of the the products I've made, and I I went in quite deeply on chatbots um, just before they were getting, I don't want to say popular because I don't know if they are very popular anymore. Um, it, was, it was just before Facebook announced um, their messenger bot platform. And I really got in on, uh, on that using a tool called ChatFuel, which let you create a messenger bot without, without coding at all. Um, and then from there, there was, there must have been all sorts of products. Um, but what was interesting to me was every time I'd share something that I built without code, I'd get response of how, how did you do that? How did you manage to do this thing without code? Um, I was building websites on card, which is C-A-R-R-D.co, which was like a really simple, simple tool um, that was launched on Product Hunt. And I was really pushing the boundaries of what you could do there. I was using things like Zapier, Airtable, uh, Webflow, Bubble to connect different things together and, and build experiences that didn't just feel like a static website. Um, and then there was one one thing I did, which was it was the ten startups in twenty four hours or something. And I know very well that it's not they're not startups necessarily, but it was just to prove that you could build something in two hours or less without code that you could then go on to build, build on and sort of grow. Um, so build, build things like job boards and, and different landing pages for different productized services and, and all sorts of things like that. And so as you built these things, you're gaining more and more confidence, not just in the use of Webflow or the use of Bubble or anything like that, or use of Airtable and Zapier and connecting these pieces together but I imagine you're building confidence in your ability to build more sophisticated uh, sort of uh, resources or platforms and so forth. Whereas somebody might use Webflow to build a website to look exactly like what they wanted to. You're building it to be a more sophisticated data-driven um, and even maybe user-generated uh, content being added to it. Uh, true web app in a lot of ways. So I imagine your confidence is building as you're doing this on the side. And you're kind of launching this one. You're launching this one. Did 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 it, was it at that point that you started to think that maybe there's money to be made or an opportunity here to teach people how to do this? It seems like you could have gone two ways. I could start teaching people how to do what I'm doing, or I could just launch and try to scale some large uh, uh, communities or platforms or uh, you know almost all almost clones of existing uh, web apps out there. And it seems like those are the two routes you could have taking taken. Um, is that how you saw it? That hey, I, I I think there's I'm onto something here. I could either do this or I could do this. Or did you have a different perspective of what you could do to make more money from doing this or have more fun with this? Um, 
I'm not sure to be honest. I think I was I'd come to my end at product hunt at this time. Um, I knew that there was too much fire in me to try and do something myself um, to sort of stay and and do that. So I left product hunt and, and spent the the next six eight months, however long it was, trying to figure out what you basically just said. So I tried doing some little product products. I, I suppose some of them, most of them, were sort of productized services, I guess, because I couldn't build anything really meaningful as a product, but I could try and scale my services. Um, and there was a time when I was trying to do a MVP built for you as a service type um, type of thing, which it just didn't really, there's loads of people interested or signing up. And then when it came to it, just no one bought it. So I had many sort of mini launches and mini failures throughout this time, which was sort of kicking me around and making me think maybe I can't quite do what I wanted to do. Um, and it is just, it's not that easy to just try and build something, launch it and then get paying customers. And that's your business. It's not that easy. Um, but then on the other hand, things like Indie Hackers came out and I just started reading some of those stories. And a lot of them are not very helpful for someone in the position I was in then, which is like, I've tried loads of things. No one likes anything I've built enough to buy it. And I can see all these people making 30,000, 40,000 a month doing something which is a product because they're an engineer. So I'm like, I can't really relate here and, and figure it out. What I did notice was there's people who ran screencasting businesses. So um, one was called Go Rails. So that's um, a guy who runs a website. You pay a membership fee, and he uploads a tutorial every week, um, something to do with uh, Rails. So I thought, well, I could do that. I could do like a no-code thing. Everyone's always asking how I built these things. Um, it never occurred to me that that's actually the thing they're trying to figure out. They don't want the end product. They want to know how to do it. Um, so that became uh, a little idea that I thought, yeah, I could, I could do the same thing. You know, working from home is mostly great, but there are some days when I realize I haven't left my house or even my chair like all day. Have you been there? Getting outside to exercise or making a trip to the gym are just harder now that my office is just a flight of stairs away. If you're stuck in the same rut as me, then you should try Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W. With the Hydro rower and 20 minutes a day, getting a full body workout is so much easier. Hydro can work up to 86% of your muscles in just 20 minutes for an insane effective home workout. That's because Hydro pairs the effectiveness of rowing with the power of technology to connect you with over 5,000 video trainings, classes, and workouts. And get ready to get out from behind your home desk because after a few months of daily rowing with Hydro, your partner's gonna wanna take you out for a night on the town to show you off. This spring, join the growing rowing community at Hydro. Head over to hydro.com and use code FREELANCE to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com and promo code FREELANCE to save $400. Hydro.com, promo code FREELANCE, or just click the link in our show description. Have you ever noticed that many of the problems people call in with on this show can be solved by hiring someone? Sometimes you need a full-fledged team, other times maybe just a simple assistant or an expert in something you're not great at. Whatever your reason for hiring, we recommend you take a look at LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. As you may know already, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. And LinkedIn Jobs makes the process of finding the perfect teammate easy and intuitive. Hiring is always easy when you have access to so many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours when using LinkedIn Jobs. I've used it myself, and it was so simple. In fact, I've made multiple hires using LinkedIn Jobs, and did I mention, by the way, it's free to business owners like me and you. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash freelance. That's linkedin.com slash freelance to post your job for free or click the link in our show description. Terms and conditions apply.
that's pretty that's still shows that you just had that sort of confidence about you that you know what I can do that <laughs> whereas I think so many people would be uh bogged down by the notion that yeah but building it means I'd have to think like a software developer and that means I'd have to get to know how each one of these software tools speak to one another or how they can integrate and so forth and I think most people would be bogged down but you had already accomplished that it sounds like you had already sort of check that box that, you know what, I can figure it out. I can figure out how these tools work together, right? Well, there's, there's an interesting thing here where um, software developers work in a certain way. They try and push things to their limit and try and figure out why it doesn't work, why it doesn't work, why it doesn't work until then it does work. And if you build them with no code, multiple tools, you go through the same processes. So still that, um, that figuring it out that you've got to go through. Um, and what I found is whenever I try to learn to code to build a certain thing, if I wanted to build an Airbnb clone, for example, I could spend, I don't know, six, nine months learning how to program to make a really crappy version of it. Or I could build an 80% version of that product in less than a week. It means that I'm less attached to it as a product. If it doesn't work, all I can think is, Okay, realistically, I spent less than a week on that, and was, and you just take a learning, a quicker learning curve from that. I think there's a quicker feedback loop, and you're less attached to what you've output because you know you've just stuck a few tools together. You may have spent ages designing it to make it look nice, which is what a lot of people end up spending most of their time on. But realistically, it's not like your life's work you've just done in in a few a few hours, a few days that has come crashing down. Um, so I think that's that's a really interesting piece about the no-code space for me is the quick feedback loop, loop of um, being able to build something, launch it, and really find out if there is anything, um, any market for it. Um, and do you and enter those, do you, when you, whenever you consider what you could build in a no-code manner, do you treat it as though, okay, I can build this with no code by uh, designing the experience, the user experience really well and connecting different services together. But if it does get traction, it's going to have to be custom built. Or do you, or do you, have you learned enough that there are some experiences, online experiences that could be built completely um, from a no code perspective where you build a couple tools together and that's going to be sufficient. You'll, you'll never have to actually go to a, a developer and say, you know what, this is, this is genuinely scaling to an extent where I've got to build other hooks into this or I've got to rebuild it from scratch because the experience can't, the way I built it can't handle <laughs> this kind of traffic, this kind of bandwidth, this kind of scale, uh, number of users and so forth. How, is, do, you, do you explore these opportunities as though they're MVPs that eventually will need to be rebuilt, or do you build them and just kind of say, you know what, let's play it by ear, let's see what happens. I think it's um, more of the latter, I guess. Um, I think it's interesting because the platforms themselves are growing every year and they're getting better and better. So they enable you to have more things, use more rows, have more computing power to to do these functions. Um, so that's always a help. I've also seen, I mean, companies like Lambda School run most of their compute, most of their sort of school stuff on Airtable. They use forms for feedback and and all of their content is is a lot of that is Airtable. And I mean, that's thousands thousands of students, right? Um, and then there's also um, if I think differently about starting startups these days as well, where if I'm going to build an Airbnb clone, I'm likely not going to try and get to 10,000 users a month, 100,000, a million, or whatever these huge numbers are. I almost want to build a business that I can run myself in my own way, how I like to run it, which may be 1,000 users per month doing X on my platform, website, or whatever. So I almost think about it differently as well. Um, and I think, I think the building with no code, it just, it, it may get to a point where it, it is limited. Um, but I don't think 
you necessarily need to worry about that before you've built the first thing in the first place and got anyone interested, 100 people, 500 people. Um, it's very different. Right. So it's as though you go into it feeling like you could build a more niche version of an existing site with maybe a few unique hooks or differentiated uh, elements to it that cater to a very specific audience and the scale doesn't need to be, you know, to the tune of millions of users or millions of customers or anything like that. Yeah, I think initially when I first started getting into the startup world, I was definitely thinking, oh, I want to build the next Uber. I want to have billion dollar valuations and huge, huge numbers. But that's like my uh, my thinking on that has really, really changed over the, over the last few years, especially with seeing things like indie hackers where they show people who have different types of businesses that run them solo or with a few contractors, own it fully and just have a really nice life. Um, and also people sometimes look down on when someone sort of clones a site, but I think that there's so many websites and apps and products out there that it's almost impossible to build a unique thing these days. I think what you should be doing, especially if you wanted to learn how to build things is look at a handful of of products you like or businesses you like the look of or sound of how they run, et cetera, and see what are the pieces of that that you could replicate for your own niche, for your own interests, and just use it as practice. I mean, if there's a way to build a certain type of tool or community that you see this person over there building, then there's no reason why you can't do something similar. Um, Even there's a site like Nomad List, for example, that is essentially a big database it's just lots of data. It's all put in a certain way. Why couldn't you do that around another specialist niche, which I can't think of off the top of my head, but you could easily you could easily do something like that and it wouldn't it, it shouldn't be seen as a bad thing, I don't think. But I think a lot of people previously have thought like that copying of the execution is is not um, a good thing. Yeah, it used to be that if you want, it used to be that if you wanted to build your own version of Airbnb or your own version of Instagram or something like that, you would find you do a search and you find a script uh, like a Instagram clone script or something like that, and you can install it and then have this uh, poor-looking version of Instagram, yeah. and and it feels like that, and it feels like a knockoff, so to speak, and and it, I could see why it would be frowned upon, and now. It's a there is a different perspective of that. There is an appreciation, I think, for building something that has a much more hyper focused um, offer th- that is a more hyper focused offering to people uh, that are just in New Zealand, <laughs> you know, or something like that, or just people who want to travel with their pet <laughs> or some. You know what I'm saying? Like there's yeah. there's there's a way to turn <laughs> those types of experiences into more refined, specific niche experiences and who cares if it started off as a, a clone of some other tool. The fact is it, it offers something of value and a, and a great user experience as well to a very specific audience, right? Yeah, and I mean, if you've learned how to navigate a certain number of websites in a certain way, you come to expect some sort of user experience level of quality, you don't want to have to have a new thing to learn every website or app you come across i think there's a standard practice of people are spending three four five years honing down on what the best experience is for delivering this data in this way then why can't you look at those um look at those sort of parts of execution and 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 do similar things yourself right so i want to get into um the growth of makerpad specifically but before we do that the idea of building Excuse me. The idea of building, call them more sophisticated websites, web apps, um, online experiences, uh, marketplaces, platforms like this, as as your thing. And and in in your case, it's unique because this is not necessarily your day job, um, as you you work at Earnest Capital. But the idea of doing this and making the equivalent of a full time income doing it as a, your career or as your job is so unique and foreign, I think, to a lot of people, including people who might understand marketing, content marketing, understand 
digital marketing, understand um, the the nuts and bolts of building a marketplace from a search standpoint or a technical web development standpoint. But doing this as your full-time thing, as your career is pretty innovative and pretty bleeding edge as far as life management. Um, do you see it that way? Or do you live in, in a community now where this type of career, where you can do the work from, not just because you can do the work anywhere, because there's a lot of jobs like that now, but where you can build micro businesses that some, the sum total of generate a nice income for you. Um, is that still seem crazy to you when you stop and think about it like that? It does when someone like you speaks to me like that and says, and says all those <laughs> things in one place, because I don't right. like day to day. I'm not, I'm not rethinking these things or these questions. Right, You're just living. Um, it. Yeah. And I think looking back and when I speak to when I'm on podcasts and things like that, it, it does sort of bring it home a bit that that is the case. And there's all this, this didn't seem necessarily possible for me before. Um, but I think it depends on what it is you're doing. I, I mean, there's a business that I love and it really helped me change what I was even thinking about doing with Makefair, which was key values. Um, a friend of mine, Lynn, she runs it and I, she's a friend now, but she wasn't back then. She, she was on the Indie Hackers podcast and she spoke about how her business got companies on, they pay a fee and she helps developers get hired. And it seemed like she'd bring in three, 400,000 a year. It's a solo business. She can almost work as much as she wants or not and still have this. Um, so that really helped me figure out what do I want to be doing with Makepad? So I had some sort of principles around what I wanted um, for my own business. like. If I had double the amount of customers, I don't want to make. I don't want there to be double the amount of support. Um, so I don't want to do things like that. I don't want to feel like it's reactive. So any weeks I have that I feel like I'm just being reactive and not doing what I want to be doing, I sort of look back on it and reflect and think, what, why has it come to this this week? What's the issue? Um, I only do. Currently, I only do a lifetime membership, which that I think is going to change very shortly. But I only do a lifetime membership because if I had a monthly membership previously, there's the expectation that every single month there needs to be the same or more value of what a member's paying. In my eyes, I think there's so many subscription products out there now that people are paying for every single month. They accumulate for... For those customers too so if i'm going to be another one i've got to make sure every single month providing x amount of value for that and that almost adds pressure to me where i don't need it at the moment with this being a side project that's pretty fascinating so the idea of having a lifetime membership takes a little bit of the pressure off to feel like you have to develop to, to deliver something new in the short term because somebody's in it for the long haul and you already have a base of resources and, and recommended tools and that sort of thing. So they'll get plenty of value if they just dig into what you currently have for you know several months and they can build their own little tools, uh, their own little platforms. I say little, but who knows how, how large they could be following the resources. And, and you don't have that pressure to have to kick something new out in six weeks, right? Yeah, exactly. I think they probably purchased the lifetime membership because they already know that whatever's behind that wall is going to be worth what they've paid for that membership. So then my job is almost done because that content's already up there. The resources, the tools, everything else is already there that they can access as soon as they, as they've, as they've paid. I don't think people now are paying thinking, Oh, well, I like some of this, but actually I can't wait for in six months time when there's, 50 other tutorials on here. I mean, they might be having some thoughts like that, but it's not the pressure of when's the next one coming out? When's this coming out? Can you do this one next? Can you do that one? Right, next? right, exactly. Show how to use, how to connect to Airtable with Zapier, with Glide, with, I mean, you don't have to, you don't feel this pressure to have to have this content machine that's churning out new tutorials where you're having to be that inventive on a regular basis, right? 
No, exactly. And I think that is difficult um, to have to do. Like last week, I created five tutorials because I just got on the zone and decided to go deep. And I did a, I did like three of them on Notion because I wanted to really figure out how and um, how people are using Notion. So that was just fun for me. And I think part of this is I like building these things not because I have to deliver them to an audience. It's because I find it interesting. And I was doing this before I even made money from it. For now, it's just people have to pay to access half of this stuff um, too. So it doesn't feel like it's a job at the moment, which is the nicest feeling ever that it's bringing in this money and it still doesn't feel like I'm owing something to someone else out there. Right. There's not that pressure to perform, pressure to uh, to deliver a, a new tutorial, new product or something like that. That's cool. So MakerPad, it officially debuted as a online, I don't even know what we want to call it. It's not really a marketplace. It's not just a resource site or a course. Um, what do you refer to it as for other, to other people? How do, you, how do you describe MakerPad to others? Um, I think it's an education platform. I think that's probably the safest thing to say. It's like a collaborative learning platform with short, concise video tutorials for non-technical professionals and creators. That's a sort of one long sentence way to describe it. That's cool. So you, you, and what you do is you, t- you use others tools like Airtable, like you've mentioned, or Glide, like we mentioned Gumroad, Webflow, things like this. You teach how to use these together to build experiences for whatever niche you would want to serve, whatever audience that you would want to serve, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. I think... Um, yeah. So there's... And, and you've evolved from that. There's the tutorials. There's the marketplace of uh, recommended tools. There's even a jobs board um, where some of these providers, the tool providers that you've mentioned, um, there's even uh, a job board for those companies out there as well. It officially launched how long ago again? Uh, it must be about six months. Okay, so s- six months. It's already doing six figures in revenue. And what do you see as how MakerPad will evolve beyond the possibility of having a monthly membership instead of just a lifetime membership. What are the things, as you've learned and become sort of a leader in this notion of no-code development, uh, no-code platform building, what do you see as the things that will need to happen in the coming months or maybe even the coming years as the idea of building things without having to rely on a developer to build them as that takes more shape, as businesses maybe even embrace some of these ideas? Yeah, I think the no-code space is really um, growing at the moment. I think there's more and more attention on it. So MakerPad is in a perfect situation for when there's more and more awareness. There's companies like Webflow raising $72 million like this week or last week, whatever it was, which really opens people's eyes up to this no-code thing is actually a thing. Um, and I think I've just actually, just this last week, started a document using Notion after playing around with it um, for MakerPad 2.0, which I think there's so much I could be doing, but also as a side project, it's difficult to try and start spinning all these plates and keeping them going if I'm trying to stick to certain principles. So I think there's an element of reconsidering what some of these principles are. And I think part of what I'm going to do is um, hire a few people people whether it's on contract or or part-time um and i really want to build some proper experiences into this um, platform so we're just about to launch some challenges where we'll we'll work with companies we'll set a challenge with um spend this month's challenge trying to build something on zapier and we'll have updates office hours and and some sort of voting to help people um, get on a leaderboard and, and learn new things. Um, so that's definitely something I think we should do. Um, and there's, yeah, there's there's that the marketplace which people, I think more and more will want to have help with getting the stuff built with no code solutions, whether they're a marketing person in a big company or whether it's someone trying to get an MVP. They know that a no-code solution could be could be the way to go. They just need a bit of help with, with getting it off the ground. Um, so that could be a big thing. And I think a lot of it revolves around 
the idea of having these user profiles on MakerPad. So if you went to my profile in three, six months, you may see that I've submitted so many tutorials. I've completed so many lessons. I've completed and hosted so many challenges. I've helped certain people with projects. I've built consecutively for 30 days in a row with no code tools. And then you could hire me from that page. It almost becomes like what a GitHub profile is to a developer. Right. It, it um, actually has its own network effect built into it where you are... You're, you, you as a maker, you as somebody who has these skills besides just Ben, um, drive people to that page because your profile is there with, it's almost like your own, dare I say, like Yelp uh, listing, or as you mentioned, a gear, GitHub profile where his, his, this is these are the projects I've done, these are the capabilities I have, and these are some of the clients, if you will, that I've done these for. Yeah, I think I've got no doubt in my mind that they'll become... Um, Sort of ways for people to hire no code uh, folks as as you hire a marketer, a growth person, a writer at the moment. I think that's definitely going to become a thing. There's so many of these platforms out there, these no code tools. Um, and yeah, I think that's a really big part of what we want to do at MakerPad. And I think if someone doesn't, <clears throat> excuse me, if someone doesn't know how, doesn't know how to build something, and then all of a sudden they can build something with no code, it often never stops there. It's not that they wanted to build that one thing because they think that's their silver bullet business idea that's going to be what they run forever. They'll often see that one thing and think, oh, that was easier and quicker, and I think I could build something maybe a bit more complex. I can try these other tools. They'll try other tools, and they'll build other things, and that seems to be a continuous cycle. And from there, they then want to share what they've built and share where they've pushed these tools, the boundaries they've pushed them, and share that with with other people, which I think is awesome because it comes, becomes its own sort of flywheel and they'll become instructors on the platform. Um, so a big part of what we want to do is have an instructor program. So following people like Egghead, I think having an instructor pr- platform would be, would be huge for MakerPads, so definitely looking into that right now. So when I step back and look at MakerPad, and I've been aware of it for uh, a few months now, and probably not right when you launched, but uh, at least three or four months now, as I look at MakerPad, it's a marvel to me because in such a short amount of time, you not only have developed a website that generates revenue in a way that is resource-driven, like you said, it's an educational platform, but you have also needed to evangelize the idea of no-code. So you're accomplishing two things at the same time. You're, you've developed a site that is a revenue-generating e-commerce site, you might say, um, uh, selling resources and educational uh, lessons and so forth. But you're also having to evangelize and build confidence in the people that could be your members, could be your customers. When you first started MakerPad, did you see it that way, that you're going to have to teach the idea while also causing people to sign up as members? Or did you just focus on the assume that people who arrive at the site already get the idea of being a, becoming a maker and doing it in a no-code fashion and you are just going to want to provide them the resources and, and have them sign up for that? Or did you see it as, as twofold there, that your purposes were twofold? I think it's twofold because I see um, the purpose of MakerPad is for two, two types of users, which is professionals and creators. If you're a creator, you often want to see if something is possible. So if having Airbnb as the demo product on a no-code site to say you can build anything without code and you see something that looks like Airbnb, your mind and your eyes are open to the possibility of what could be built without code. And I think as part of some of my tutorials, whether I've thought about it a lot or not, is some of them have to be expected that no one's going to actually follow through this tutorial and actually make that exact thing, but needs to just see that certain things are like able to be built without code. So there's a lot of things. Sources of inspiration, like the tutorials are kind of a source of inspiration or just an idea starter, right? An igniter. Yes. So there's a there's some of them, which, which I think would be more in that, in that sort of field. Um, 
but equally we have to do that and the more sort of smaller tools which you can build yourself and really help you get through a problem you're trying to solve it's fascinating i i i think that you are i genuinely think that makerpad is a good example of the future of work um i and by that i mean not just from the makers standpoint which i think is incredible it's a whole new job uh description i think is that companies can hire people who can rapidly spin up um, online platforms, online offerings to differentiate themselves and not have to be beholden to it being built in a certain uh, software language where if you contract it out, you're going to have to find somebody that that also uh, codes in that language and can get up to speed quickly if you, if you ever have to add features later on or something like that. I think that you're on to something incredible in terms of job opportunities, people that are incredible makers that can bring things to life visually that were built on the backs of other tools. But I also think the idea of companies being able to differentiate instead of just having static websites, but actually having products and services that depend upon these sorts of uh, no-code sort of software offerings, either that power their business or are a key part of their business, I genuinely think it's the future. I, I... I know you're a young guy. I know MakerPads only existed for a few months, but uh, I am I'm absolutely sold on this being a, a key part of the future of work. I, I totally agree, and I really appreciate um, you saying that. That's uh, very nice of you. All right. Well, before I let you go today, Ben, um, ben this is this has been uh, hopefully a mind blowing episode for some people as far as what's possible as they have either bookmarked in their mind when they've listened to the episode uh, to go to MakerPad and to see some of these examples of things that have been built. Um, I think it's going to be an eye-opener for a lot of people and hopefully it'll be a source of inspiration for them as well. But before I let you go, um, I've introduced a new segment called Three for One. And I want to have you take part in that before we, uh, before we let you run. The Three for One is this. I've got three questions for you that ask you for one thing. And you don't need to spend too much time debating over what your best answer would be, but just give me your your quickest answer to it, uh, short and sweet, soundbite like, and 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 we'll let that take us on the uh, on the landing strip home. You ready? Okay. Yeah. I'll <laughs> All right. It. So, question number one is: Give me one principle or value that you believe that most people don't. I think that your business should be proactive rather than reactive. That's a good one. Proactive rather than reactive. That is a uh, first principle. You know, that's, that goes back to Stephen Covey days and it, yet it's still a tough one for a lot of people to, to stick to. All right. Be proactive. Now, one behavior or habit that you personally try to stick to no matter what. I try to block out time to just build and do whatever I want and then do all the admin stuff in a in a chunk of the day. So you sort of time chunk. You kind of block off time, uninterrupted time, where you do just that one thing. Just build. Well, yeah, I, I, give, my, I give my time. Yeah, I give my time just to experiment with building. It could, meet, it could be a few things, but yeah. Actually, that. that might be the coolest thing that you just said is that it's experimental time. <laughs> it's time to just sort of toy around with ideas just a little bit. That might be the, uh, the, the nugget of wisdom there. Good. All right. And then the last one, one person that you most admire that you take your cues from in life, and that could be professionally or personally. Who's somebody that you, I don't want to say you aspire to be like them, but somebody that you, you pay close attention to how they act or how they think. I think Lynn Tai, who I mentioned, runs Key Values. That's just how she's built that business is incredible to me and something I hope to uh, emulate. Awesome. Ben, thanks so much for coming on the show today. It's been awesome having you on and learning more about MakerPad and your backstory. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. That was the story of Ben Tossel, founder of MakerPad.co. He's a visionary developer, despite no development credentials, and head of platform at Ernest Capital. Check our show notes for links to his work. All right, stay tuned for next week as we bring you the story of Charlie Frankus, a one-time restaurant marketer who now heads up a successful employee contest 
and promotional service company based in Cincinnati, Ohio called Springzy. If you enjoyed this episode, will you please give us your rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you enjoy your podcasts and tell a friend or two or three or numerous. Recommend us, mention us, pass us along and reach out to me on Twitter at Brandon Hull. All right, thank you to my co-producer, Preston Lee, and our wonderful research and production assistant, Bilal Abrar, for helping put this episode together, as well as to the Podglomerate Network. All right, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you next week on Freelance to Founder. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.